As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. A hot sun beached down on a green land. This was no desert, but a verdant marsh, teeming with life and sweltering in humidity. Narrow waterways passed by muddy banks, thickets of papyrus and lotus flowers. Wild animals like the hippopotamus and birds like the ibis made their way across a lush environment. This swampy expanse, called the Nile Delta, was a wild land, untamed, populated by hunters. It was a land in the midst of conflict. A tired, sweating man knelt in the dirt. His arms ached from battle, his brow was sweaty from the heat. He rested uncomfortably on the ground, while another man watched over him. Nearby, comrades also knelt in the soil. Their limbs were stained with blood. The sun shone down on a day of battle. These kneeling men were the losers. The prisoner sweated in his humiliation and fear. The ache of defeat was nothing to the knowledge of what was to come. If he looked around, he would see that future written on the face of his captors. For those in defeat, this was a dark day, but for another group, it was a scene of victory. Around the clearing, warriors had gathered to watch over their prisoners. They clutched their spears excitedly. These men wore no armour, only white cloth kilts, Their skin, a mix of red-browns and deep blacks, was shiny with sweat. They were warriors of the most ancient sort, followers of a king, and they had come in conquest. The crowd of victorious warriors parted, and a tall, muscular man emerged. He was elegantly dressed, in a sort of tunic clasped over the chest. An ornate belt was cinched at his waist, and from this belt the tail of a lion hung down. The man wore a short beard from his chin up his jawline. Atop his head, he sported a tall white cap, shaped a bit like a bowling pin. This cap was a crown. The man was a king. A king who had come to rule. The great king, victorious in battle, twisted his fingers into the hair of his kneeling prisoner. He pulled the hair around his fist and yanked the prisoner up onto his haunches. With his other arm, the king lifted a threatening weapon. It was a mace, a smooth stone lashed to a stick. The stone was carved with images of royal power, of great gods and ancestors. It was a weapon and a symbol. It was the king's power made manifest. The prisoner shivered. Perhaps, in a last moment of defiance, he looked up, staring the ruler in the eye. The king was a silhouette, haloed by the sun, His mace was a cruel shadow rising into the air. A falcon screeched, and the mace swished. Crack! The prisoner collapsed, dust kicking up around his lifeless body. The soldiers roared, cheering as their victory was cemented in blood. The king released his grip and raised his mace high. The heavy club, stuck with blood and bits, glimmered in the light. Warriors celebrated, prisoners were executed. And in the dust of a day's battle, 
the land of Egypt was born. Hello, welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode one, The Two Lands. This is a tale of how Egypt as we know it came to be, of the legendary figures who built one of humanity's first civilizations on the banks of the Nile River more than 5,000 years ago. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we embark on a trip through the story of a fascinating and incredibly accomplished people. Stick around at the end of this episode where I will introduce myself and the show as a whole. The story that I just told you was a lie. Or more charitably, it is a mythologized event in the early history of ancient Egypt. The tale of the king with his mace is one possible version of how the Egyptian kingdom came to be. It might be a version which the Egyptians themselves believed, but it is not quite the truth. The tale of the king executing his prisoners is a legendary origin for Egypt as a state. It's not the whole story, not by a long shot, but it is a good place to start. Why? Well, for one thing, it's a story which the Egyptians themselves commemorated. For another, it is a dramatic introduction to the world of the pharaohs as a whole. Welcome to ancient Egypt. If you go to the Egyptian museum in Cairo, one of the first artifacts you will see is a small grey palette. It is about 63 centimeters tall, two feet. It is made of stone, carved and polished smooth. It looks like an inverted triangle, and it is decorated on both sides with hieroglyphs and artistic scenes. The pictures on the palette focus on one thing in particular, a powerful man bearing the hallmarks of a king. This man is called Namer. Namer is a good candidate for being the first, quote-unquote, king of Egypt. He lived around 3000 BCE, and in his time, the people of the land seem to have been developing some of their oldest and most recognizable traditions. The Namer palette is a good entry point to all of this. The Namer palette is important because it seems to show one of Egypt's earliest kings in the act of conquering his enemies. The king appears in the middle of executing prisoners, the very scene with which I opened this episode. He stands tall, raising his mace, ready to smite the cowering captive beneath him. On the other side of the pallet, Nama and his troops parade in front of a pile of corpses. They carry banners of the gods, and beneath them, a bull, a symbol of royalty, tramples and destroys villages. Basically, the overall picture is of a king triumphing over his foes. This is the first glimpse we have of the enigmatic figure called Namer. Namer lived somewhere around 3000 BCE, probably a bit earlier. His name means something like Na the Excellent, Excellent Fighter, or even Angry Catfish. Now that last one might seem strange, but it does make sense. Catfish are predatory, feeding on other fish and their eggs. Some catfish, including those in the Nile, 
even stunned their prey with electric shocks. So the name Namir might convey the idea of a king as a victorious warrior. He stuns his enemies and takes what is theirs. It kind of works, right? Also, a name like Angry Catfish is just kind of cool, all things considered. Namir came from the south of Egypt, the region which we generally know as Upper Egypt because it is upriver along the Nile. He ruled an extensive kingdom, covering at least half of the country, and in his day, Egyptians were travelling and trading far and wide. Namir sent groups out into the desert to mine for gold and minerals, and he may have raided or warred with the southern land of Nubia, which is modern Sudan. Namir oversaw a prosperous and thriving kingdom, and he was able to send expeditions outside of his borders over huge distances. If you've read any book about ancient Egypt, which was written more than 10 years ago, you may have an idea of the ancient world, and the Egyptians in particular, as being an isolated, insular people. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. We now know that the early Egyptians were a lot more international than you might expect. Artifacts of Egyptian manufacture, and bearing the name of Namir himself, show up as far away as southern Israel, the land that we call Canaan. That may not seem so far away, but when you're travelling by foot or by donkey, getting from Egypt to southern Israel is one difficult journey. So, for these earliest peoples to project their power or their communications that far away is actually quite a big deal. What's more, the Egyptians didn't just visit Canaan, many of them actually settled there. Archaeological remains suggest that by the time of King Namir, Egyptians had already established trading posts or even fortresses in the lands of southern Israel. Essentially, they were there to trade, to communicate, and to live. As if that wasn't impressive enough, Egyptian archaeology even shows that these ancient peoples had connections with lands as far away as modern Afghanistan. Many sites in ancient Egypt from the earliest period show traces of a mineral called lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is a blue stone, and it is only available in the mountainous regions that we know as Afghanistan. Trade routes seem to have taken this mineral far and wide, and even 5,000 years ago it was reaching the peoples of Egypt. So we're not dealing with a world of isolated primitive communities. Instead, we have a new vision of long-reaching trade routes, communication and interaction. A world that is interconnected, with routes and pathways crisscrossing the continent of Africa and the Middle East. That's the world in which the earliest Egyptians and their king, Naamer, were moving. It's a much different picture than it used to be just a couple of decades ago. Naamer did not rule alone. He had a queen, a woman named Neith Hotep. This name, Neith Hotep, means the goddess Neith is satisfied. Neith Hotep was a very influential woman. When she died, she was buried in a huge tomb, even larger than that of Namir. Neith Hotep's burial was a grand structure, discovered in the 1800s, but then, sadly, lost to erosion. This burial, whatever remains of it, hints that the queen was once an incredibly powerful woman. Naamer and Neith Hotep ruled a mighty and growing kingdom. There are traces of this time period all over Egypt. That famous palette, of course, is the most notable. 
There are also relics like the head of a stone mace. A mace which shows Namir seated on his throne, while servants, warriors, and animals gather around him. Neith Hotep is there too, sitting under a canopy, and on some sort of carrying chair. Is this a record of their marriage? We're not sure. But it's a lovely little image, which you can see, along with others from this episode, on the podcast website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com. Namir and Neith Hotep the first known king and queen of Egypt, ruled long, ruled well, and died at a good old age. They were buried in their tombs, and when they went to their rest, the next generation came to power. We will meet that generation in episode 2. This is the gist of Namer. He is a real figure, but a largely mythologized king, who lived about 5,000 years ago, and maybe, just maybe, was the first king of a unified Egyptian state. Namer the man lived around 3000 BCE. I use BCE rather than BC because that's the standard in modern academia. And Namer is a figure of intense academic debate. For more than a hundred years, scholars have studied, theorized, restudied, and revised their interpretations of this man and where he fits into the larger story of Egyptian society. For some people, Namir is still the first king. For others, he is maybe just one among many, a piece of a puzzle that is still missing far too many pieces. Realistically, we may never know the exact truth of the first kings. But that being said, new artifacts do show up regularly. The more that archaeologists dig in the most ancient cemeteries and settlements, the more they seem to find about this most distant period. Namer is a good figure to start with, because he gives us a glimpse of how the royal state appeared or represented itself in the very earliest days of ancient Egypt. Now that we've got to grips with his life, we can look at how the rest of the country was forming and developing, way, way back at the very dawn. Let's take a journey down the Nile, 5,000 years ago. Egypt, as a wise man once said, is a gift of the Nile. This is true, and it always has been. Without the River Nile, the land of Egypt and all its mighty accomplishments would never have happened. So to understand Egypt, we must first understand the Nile. The Nile is simple enough. It is a river, an enormous river, that flows through the northeastern corner of the African continent. It flows through 11 different countries, and every day, millions and millions of people depend on it to support their lives. There are two reasons why the Nile is so important to ancient Egypt. Apart from being a giant source of fresh water, the Nile has some wonderful characteristics which helped the earliest Egyptians to build a prosperous way of life. The first of these features was the Flood. Every year, around July and August, monsoon rains in Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya fill the sources of the Nile with fresh rainwater. 
That water drains over the course of 7,000 kilometers downriver, which means that once a year the level of the Nile rises heavily and it floods in a grand expression of nature's power. When it does this, something happens to the land on either side. As the Nile rose and flooded its riverbanks, the water would deposit many tons of silt, mud, and alluvium onto the soil of Egypt. In effect, the flooding was like one massive fertilization, a huge dump of minerals and nutrients that replenished the soil and renewed the earth. Once the waters drained away and the flooding ended for the year, the soil of Egypt was revitalized, ready for farming once more. Covered in a layer of thick black mud, this soil could be used for crops and growing. The mud on the riverbanks was the lifeblood of ancient Egypt. They called this ribbon of rich muddy soil Kemet, the Black Land, and this is a name by which many people still know Egypt today. To either side of Kemet there was Desheret, the Red Land, aka the sandy wastelands of the Sahara. So Egypt was a place of two ecologies, the Black Kemet and the Red Desheret. In between the two, the waters of the Nile were the primary source of life. The Egyptian word for the Nile is Iteru, the river. They didn't need to call it River Nile, because to them it was the only river that mattered. In more theological contexts, the river might also be called Hapi, after the god who created it. Most of the time, in day-to-day -day texts, you'll find it called Iteru. So, Iteru the river, Desheret the desert, and Kemet the black soil. These were the main components of Egypt's ecology, and from these elements they would build a flourishing economy and a mighty state. Anyway, back to the Nile River. Once a year the Nile flooded, helping to fertilize the soil and rejuvenate it. Thanks to this fertilization, farms could produce huge amounts of food without worrying that they would exhaust the soil every year. Of course, all that production needed to go somewhere, and this is where the Nile plays its second big part. The Nile River is quite calm, and it moves slowly. You can navigate it without much trouble, and getting upriver or downriver is as simple as hopping in a boat and breaking out the oars, or sails. There are a couple of places, particularly in the far south, where it gets a bit rocky, but mostly the Nile is a quiet, comfortable ride. This made it safe, and safety was perfect for ancient travel. In fact, ancient Egyptians never really needed roads or highways. If they wanted to get somewhere, the Nile was usually the quickest way. Putting these two things together, the annual flood and the easy transportation on the river, the early Egyptians were sitting on some prime real estate, possibly the best real estate in the world. They had everything they could need, a stable environment, a good source of water, easy transport, and productive farmland. From these building blocks, the people of Egypt would form a successful society and a mighty kingdom. They owed all of this to the waters of the Nile River. Egypt was a rural place. It was a land of simple farmsteads, tiny villages, and a few growing towns. The people were hard-working farmers, fishers, craft workers, and hunters. They lived busy lives trying to feed themselves and their families, and in the most ancient days their horizons were pretty narrow, as narrow as the deserts that surrounded them. 
Way back in the earliest phases of recorded history, Egypt was a quiet and unassuming land. So this is the world of early Egypt and its people. On the banks of the Nile, they carved a humble but effective lifestyle. They farmed, fashioned, fought, and reproduced. Over time, their hamlets grew into communities. Communities grew into kingdoms. We opened this episode with a myth. A myth of the so-called unification of Egypt by King Namir. That myth is no longer popular among Egyptologists. So, what is the current theory about how the kingdom was created? Well, without getting too academic, there are entire books, hundreds of pages long, dedicated to just this process. The basic gist of the story goes like this. In the very earliest days, 3000 BCE and earlier, Egypt was home to hundreds of small, self-sufficient towns. These people lived tiny, local lives, and their horizons were limited. Over time, that changed. As generations passed, some communities began to grow larger, more resourceful than the others. Looking around them, the leaders of these communities saw other places filled with goods, goods that they wanted. With their warriors, these early chieftains began to raid. One town would attack another, taking its cattle, its grain, and maybe even its people as slaves. These attacks played out like a countrywide game, and one famous description compares it to a game of Monopoly. Basically, every time a town won, it gained some things that it needed, and deprived other towns of what they needed. One by one, the strong grew stronger, and the weak were forced to follow them. Communities became districts, districts became chiefdoms, finally, chieftains became kingdoms. Once kingdoms arose in the Nile Valley, the process of unification began to steamroll. Kingdoms started to fight with one another, and as one expanded, others were forced back. Eventually, it's possible that one kingdom in particular managed to overcome the others and establish itself as the sole ruling force over the entire land of Egypt. We're not sure exactly how this happened, or even exactly when, but the traces of archaeological material suggest that slowly one way of life and one means of expressing themselves began to dominate all the others. Eventually, Egyptians were basically living the same lifestyle all across the country. When this happened, the process of unification, as we call it, was essentially begun. Of course, it didn't happen overnight, and it actually may have taken centuries for the process to play out to its final completion. In fact, by the time of the Great Pyramid around 2500 BCE, the process might still have been in the works. Essentially, it's a long story, and we're going to get into that in great detail. Anyway, the basic gist is that cultural and economic trends slowly brought communities and peoples together, and over time, a mighty kingdom formed that ruled most of the country. How this all happened is still very murky. Some think that it was a process which the elites or the kings demanded and forced upon the people. Others think that maybe the cultural trends facilitated more political unity. Basically, the coming together into a single nation of people could have been a top-down process led by the state, or a bottom-up process led by the people. As of 2018, there is no consensus, 
Maybe we'll get there one day. Five thousand years ago, approximately, Egypt as we know it was born. Whether it was King Namer or someone else, or perhaps a series of people working over time, what is clear is that eventually the land slowly came together into what we know as a kingdom. The influence of people like Namer helped to direct many changes in the lives of ordinary Egyptians. With the rise of royalty and the creation of a kingdom, the history of Egypt begins. That is a story for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast, episode one. Welcome to the show. My name is Dominic Perry, and I will be your host across three millennia of fascinating Egyptian history. Let me start by introducing who I am, and then what I'm planning with this show. My name is Dominic, and I am from New Zealand. I have been obsessed with ancient Egypt ever since I was a child. I studied Egyptology at university and completed a master's degree on the subject in 2014. In that time, I wrote a thesis on Egyptian economics and a dissertation about the pharaoh Horemheb, who was a successor to King Tutankhamun. I have participated in excavations at Egypt's Dakla Oasis and Sudan's Jebel Barkal. Those experiences were wonderful, and one day I hope to return to the field. So that's the basic gist of who I am and what my credentials are. Now, let's talk about the podcast. The goal of the History of Egypt podcast is very simple. I want to use the podcasting medium, combined with my academic experience and what I'm able to access, to bring the world of ancient Egypt to life in the best way that I can. Instead of just narrating a straightforward history of the pharaohs and their accomplishments, I want to also delve into the world of ancient Egypt. I want to get into the communities, the daily life, the beliefs, the attitudes, and the experiences of the people, both rich and poor. I'm going to use literature, art, archaeology, and academic scholarship to bring the lives of these peoples to you. The core focus of the History of Egypt podcast is a story of ancient Egypt in their own words. I'm going to run from the start of Egyptian history, which you just experienced, to the death of Queen Cleopatra, with an epilogue covering the Roman period in Egypt. Basically, that's the story of the pharaohs and their legacy. It's a big tale, but, as I think you'll find, it's one that is endlessly fascinating, with new and rich stories cropping up in every single period. So that's me, and that's what we're aiming for. Welcome to the show, and I hope you enjoy it. The website for the show is www.egyptianhistorypodcast.com. Every episode has a companion piece on the website where I post the artifacts and references that I use in each story. You can also get in touch with the show via email at egyptpodcast at gmail.com. I also use Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to share content, and you'll find links to those pages on the website. Basically, we have the full range of stuff you might want from your social media. Once again, the email is egyptpodcast at gmail.com, and the website is egyptianhistorypodcast.com. Now, we have a short ad break in most episodes because advertising pays for the podcast server costs, research, and helps to keep me from being homeless. To sweeten the pot, 
there is an epilogue after this ad, where I explain the story behind a most famous figure, the legendary Scorpion King. Stick around. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. This is an epilogue to today's show, if you're interested. It's a small story, which I cut out of the main episode due to time. It's not essential material, so feel free to skip ahead to the next episode. Otherwise, stick around for a few minutes, and hear a story of a legendary figure you might not have realized was real. Let me tell you about the Scorpion King. Around 3100 BCE, A mighty warlord was powerful in Egypt. He was a ruler of a southern kingdom, a kingdom that was eventually absorbed by the north. This king, powerful in his day, was named Selk, or perhaps Weha. We know him better as King Scorpion, the same figure who appeared in the 2001 film The Mummy Returns. In that film, King Scorpion was played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and went down as one of the worst examples of CGI animation in modern history. Anyway, King Scorpion was a real person, and we know a surprising amount about him. Once upon a time, King Scorpion, or someone acting in remembrance of him, buried a large stone mace head at a town called Neken. This mace head was heavy, a real head crusher. It was carved from limestone, with delicate images covering its whole surface. Half weapon, half work of art, this mace head is one of the most wonderful symbols left of the early Egyptian period. The scorpion mace head shows the king himself in the act of farming. He holds a wooden hoe and appears to be digging a canal or irrigation ditch. Around him, Attendants carry baskets of dirt away, and gently cool him with large fans. Above the king, the symbols of different gods record the towns over which he ruled. Just in front of his nose, a large scorpion and a flower rosette testify to his identity. King Scorpion is remarkably well known for someone who lived so long ago. Several artifacts reveal glimpses of the man and his reign. Stone vessels and ivory tags carved with the name of the king give us a hint at his activities. Also, rock carvings in different parts of the desert suggest places he may have visited. 
None of these traces gives us a tidy historical narrative, but they came from all over Egypt, and they hint that Scorpion might have had far-reaching influence, or trade networks, carrying his name outside of his kingdom. One tag shows Scorpion smiting his enemies, an exciting precursor to the palette of Namur which seems so important today. According to some theories, Scorpion might have been a contemporary of Namur. If so, you have to wonder if Namur was so special after all. Maybe he just got lucky in the game of preservation. King Scorpion had a tomb, and it may be one of the tombs located among the more ancient cemeteries of the land. Confusingly, he's not the only King Scorpion in the record, there are actually two of them. Two Scorpion kings, ruling decades or even centuries apart, but each contributing to the legacy of early Egypt. One of these kings was buried in a tomb containing jars of wine, wine that might have come from as far away as Canaan. This King Scorpion conquered towns in the north of Egypt and was apparently a powerful man. So yeah, Next time you're at a cocktail party and somebody mentions the 2001 film The Mummy Returns, here's your chance. You can tell them that the Scorpion King was real, and that there was even two of them. I mean, it's a niche anecdote, but when that moment comes, you'll be ready. That's all from me. See you in episode 2, Horus Takes Flight. Thanks for listening.